And well, friends, at this time, I'd invite all the kids out this side door for Jumpstart, our kids program. And while the kids are heading out that door, let's stand now for the reading of God's word. Uh, if you're just joining us here at JPC, welcome. My name is Dustin. I get to be the pastor here. So kids, you can go out that side door. If you've got your Bible, open up to the book of Judges. Uh, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that we are going through a series called Whole, where we're going through the whole Old Testament one book of the Old Testament per week for all the 39 books in the Old Testament. So uh, when I started this series, uh, it, was, uh, it was a little alarming to me when I realized that, that if I were to do this, that, that would mean that on Resurrection Sunday, I would be preaching from the book of Judges, which if you have read the Bible, is not your classic Easter sermon. Uh, but friends, what I've been suggesting to uh, you for several weeks and really uh, for years what this church has taught is every page of God's word leads to the person of Jesus Christ, God among us. So no matter where you are in the Old Testament, we can be lined to Jesus because he is the king that the Old Testament is always pointing towards. So with that in mind, we're going to look at one verse. It's Judges 21, verse 25. It's the very last verse of the book of Judges. Our passage is only one verse. But I am cheating a little bit because this one verse is said four times in the book of Judges. And you know what they say when somebody repeats something? You know, it's usually, well, I forget. I, they, I guess they didn't repeat that phrase enough. What is it? You repeat it because you want them to learn it? Judges 21, 25 here, but no, it's said in other passages as well. So yeah, it's in 17, verse 6. It's also 21, verse 25, and 19, 1, and so on. Uh, but friends, hear the word of the Lord to us in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated? And let's keep that Bible open in front of you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask now in the powerful name of King Jesus that you would give us eyes to see, that we would not be wise in our own eyes, but we would have the eyes of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, so the sermon this morning is called The King We Need. So I guess the question version of that is, do you think we need a king? <laughs> do you think you need a king? Do we need a king? Uh, a king is kind of a threat to our freedoms, right? And what's more sacred to you and me than our freedoms, right? Our ability to do what we want to do. Uh, it's hard to argue that there is a more precious value in our society than freedom, right? I don't care where you are personally on the political spectrum or honestly where in the age demographics you are because everybody values freedom. We all want to do what we want to do, right? So this idea that Jesus is coming with good news to you that the good news is this, Jesus is king, is some kind of a threat to our freedom, isn't it? And yet Jesus can also say, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So which is it? Does the gospel offer you freedom or something else? Well, the gospel offers you freedom, but not in the way that you often think about freedom. Uh, you know, the struggle with understanding God's offer of freedom was really well summarized by Mark Lila. He is a Columbia professor in New York, and writing in the New York Times, he talked about his unconversion, not his conversion story, not his testimony, but his unconversion, why he chose not to become a follower of Jesus. 
And Professor Lila says it this way. He said he had a friend who was talking to him about Jesus, and this is what the guy, this is what Lila said. He says, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus, remember in John 3 when Jesus says, you must be born again? When Jesus says that to Nicodemus, he must then, as Nicodemus, recognize his own insufficiency. What do you mean I'm insufficient? That he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater than himself. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom, and it is. So for Lila, he properly heard the gospel, that to follow Jesus somehow would be a restriction of his freedom. But what Lila did not understand was that it wasn't a restriction of his freedom per se. It was actually the offer of the gospel is that you are free to become what you were always meant to be. (laughs) The freedom to just do whatever we want isn't actually freedom. Freedom, according to the Bible and King Jesus, is the opportunity and the power to become who you were always designed to be. That's freedom. Um, Think about it this way. Let's say you were a ship, okay, and you were a really big ship, and you said, I'm free to do whatever I want. That's real freedom. I'm going to go where I want to go. And you say, I am free to ram into the side of a canal, (laughs) for instance, And someone says, hey, what are you doing? And you say, don't challenge my freedom. And they say, okay, well, that's fine, but you're going to make shipwreck of the canal and of your life and of your boat, right? I guess you're free to run into the canal. But is that how your boat was designed to operate? Your boat was designed not to run into the side of a canal. It was designed to do what? To go to open water. Now, make this leap with me. If you believe in God... If you believe God created you with a design, a design more beautiful than the design of a boat, with more inherent dignity because he made you in his very image, and no matter what anybody has done to you, that mark of being pressed into the image of God is indelible. Nothing can remove it. If that's who you are, and you say, my freedom is the freedom to run my life into the side of a canal and ruin the canal for everybody. I guess that's freedom. But what Jesus would say is that sounds like slavery. What Jesus, the real king, offers you is to pull you out of the canal so that you can go to open waters and become what you were always meant to be, which is made in his image. Not that you cease to be you, you actually become the you you were always meant to be, which is your spirit and the spirit of God are unified. So King Jesus offers you freedom for what it really is, but we really struggle to believe that, right? Because when the Bible starts giving us rules and laws and starts to reveal God's character, it starts to get in the way of us wanting to ram into the side of the canal. So do we need a king? Well, look with me at Judges. Because this is very much the argument of the book of Judges. And of course, that the, the verse right here, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have to ask ourselves, is that a compliment? Hey, they didn't need government. Everybody knew what was right and they all did the right thing. Is that what that verse means? No. 
the point is the book of Judges has a lot of horrible things that happened, and this is an indictment on it. Although it doesn't say we need a king, this is its argument, right? So uh, that verse is kind of like, I mean, if, you know, if you're standing right here and I put my foot and my weight all on your foot, you would probably say, hey, your foot's on my foot. You're standing on my foot. That may be what you're saying, but what do you mean? What would you be saying by that? What are you communicating? Hey, you're on my foot. What are you saying? Get off my foot. <laughs> when Judges says there's no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it's not a compliment. What it's saying is this is what goes wrong with humanity, that they don't bow the knee to the king. And instead of seeing things through his eyes, his lenses, they decide to take off his lenses and just decide for themselves what they're seeing. So what's going on in Judges then, right? What a strange Resurrection Sunday sermon. Well, if you read the book of Judges, um, it reminds me of this like dumb movie that I watched years ago. I was all excited because Johnny Depp was in it, and it was like Sweeney Todd and the, I don't know, Edward Scissorhands massacre of like 1700s England. Did anybody see this dumb movie? Don't see it. It was really dumb. But it started off, and it was like a, it was a musical, which I didn't know. And five minutes in, I'm like, I'm kind of into this. This is cool. But then all of a sudden, everyone starts dying, and there's blood and guts everywhere. And by the end, everyone's dead. And I was like, this isn't what I thought I was getting into. I thought I was going to see a fun movie. Sometimes when we read the book of Judges, we go in thinking, oh, this is going to be a cool story from the Bible. And all of a sudden, it starts to get really bloody. And then by the end of it, everything's bloody and everything is bad. And it's like, it's bad in the way that you almost want to put the book down. Where you're like, this is so discouraging. Because what happens is God's people are in need of leadership. And things start off pretty well. God says Judah, the tribe of Judah, should be your leader. And we get a good judge named Othniel, and he's great. But then he has this pesky problem that all good leaders do. What's the pesky problem? He is mortal, so he dies. So he was great until he died, and then he was no more. And then we get some more judges, and they're like kind of okay, I guess. And then we get into some judges like Gideon in chapters 6 through 8. And Gideon is a good judge. He's commended for his faith. But then Gideon starts to do some sort of questionable things. Like he decides to torture some fellow Israelites for not supporting him. And then to another town that doesn't support him, he ends up killing them. And there's this great moment in Gideon's life where the people come up to Gideon and they say, hey, how about we make you king? And he says, no, 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 I don't want to be king. But I will take all your gold earrings. <laughs> I will take all your gold and your tax money. Thank you very much. And then, of course, we get to a judge named Jephthah. And things turn really ugly. Jephthah ends up killing his own daughter as a sacrifice to God, something the Bible expressly forbids us from doing. God never wants human sacrifice, and yet Jephthah sacrifices his daughters. What's going on? And then we get more leaders like Samson. Don't even get me started on Samson. I love Samson, but I would not want him marrying my daughter. That's all I'm going to say about Samson. <laughs> Samson dies. He's the, the king that could have been, or he's the judge that could have been, right? Samson, right? So much potential, and yet touches dead animals, struggles with Delilah. And then, of course, by the end of Judges, the author turns his attention to the religious leaders. So this is around chapters 17, 18, and 19. And they don't even name these religious leaders. They're just referred to by their tribe, the Levites. And the Levites do all kind of terrible things. They steal from their mothers. 
And then this is hard to believe, but they're really, really greedy. And the religious leader's main goal is to get more money and find a bigger congregation. And that's exactly what happens. This Levite has a little call with a little house, and then a bigger tribe comes along and says, leave this dinky call behind. Come with us. We'll give you more money and more prestige. And so the religious leader goes with it. And if that's not bad enough, another Levite ends up doing something unspeakable to his concubine. Unspeakable. I can't even say it out loud. But suffice it to say that women are incredibly abused, mistreated, traumatized, and treated like second-class citizens. And what happens is that's not bad enough. What happens to that poor woman, that poor concubine, sparks a civil war among God's people. And all 11 tribes attack the Benjamite tribe, and they almost wipe them out completely. And then they swear they're never going to give their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin because they were so wicked. But then, because of that past injustice of doing this horrible thing, all the 11 tribes are like, wait a second, we can't let a, a tribe die, right? We can't let this tribe die off. So what are we going to do? They, can't, they don't have any wives left over there. What are we going to do? Well, you know what they do? They raid one of their own communities and steal the women and give it to the tribe of Benjamin. And then they say, oh, there's a worship service going on over in that community. When the young women start to celebrate and they dance around the fires, you guys sneak in and steal them and they'll be your wives. That's the end of the book of Judges. Oh, wait, excuse me. The very end of the book of Judges, after that happens, are these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So why do we need a king? What's the argument of the book of Judges? Well, I know I just painted a pretty gruesome picture, but just try to envision a world in which God's people are utterly divided, um, civil war is just like stirring in the air. Hatred runs deep. Religious leaders are all greedy, looking for the next big call. And women are killed and mistreated and abused. Sound like a world you've ever entered into? The reason we need a king is because when Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, the reason we need a king is because those days are really just what? Our days. They're just our days. Humanity has not changed. Our needs have not changed. What we need is we need a king. But the problem is, we know too many leaders who fail. We need a different kind of king. So that's my first argument. Why do we need a king? Because those days and judges are really just our days. They sound eerily similar, don't you think? So uh, what's the indictment? Look at verse 25. Well, what happens is everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So what does that phrase mean? They do what's right in their own eyes. Well, you know, this goes back to what I was suggesting to you about freedom. We misunderstand freedom because we can only picture today, and this is something philosophers have sort of pointed out, we today can only imagine freedom as freedom from something, freedom from restrictions. We don't have any concept or cultural value, if you will, for freedom to something. We can only think of freedom as freedom away from things, right? So when we do things like that are right in our own eyes, we think of it as I'm getting away from authority because, let's be honest, I've gotten known a lot of people in authority. They've mistreated me, so of course I'm gun-shy, right? We get, we get that. But what would it mean to have freedom to something? Well, let me just pause on that. Just, I'll come back to that in just a second. 
But this idea of doing what's right in our own eyes, you know, wiggling away from authority, right? Doing what's right in our own eyes. Notice that this is not really what we're designed to do. You know, Proverbs 16 says it this way, all, all the ways of a man are right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, right? We all, you know, this is like, reminds me of what Anne Lamott, that famous novelist, once said. She said, everyone thinks their opinions are right. If they didn't, they would change their minds, right? Of course I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I would change my mind, right? We all think we're doing what's right in our own eyes, but all throughout God's word, God has the audacity to tell people, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which I preached on two weeks ago, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Uh, what the Bible has the audacity to say is God determines what's right and what's wrong and what's just and what's fair and what's merciful. But notice too, I guess, when we think about doing things that we think are right in our own eyes, did you, did you notice that they are actually doing what they think is right? Did you catch that? They think what they are doing is right. This is like the deceitfulness of sin. We think we're doing the right thing even though we're not because we're not looking at things through God's word. We're not looking through his eyes. And so when the people steal all these women, they're like, I guess that was the right thing to do. When they do all these, oh, I guess this is the right thing to do. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're doing what they think they're supposed to do. I mean, think about the way people are, are living today. I mean, we're all just sort of making up the rules as we go, right? I mean, think about it this way. I mean, imagine that there was a Christian media company here in the valley. Just, just imagine that. And then imagine a social media platform removed them and all of their videos. Now, what I want you to grasp, though, is that media company, that social media outlet, they're doing what they think is right. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Just like when Instagram pulled our church's Instagram account offline this week because of our Resurrection Sunday ads, they thought they were doing a moral and just thing. You know, when people riot, they think they're doing us a favor. They think they're doing something right. You know what the Bible says about our hearts? Jeremiah 17.9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are self-deceived. So what's the answer? Why do we need a king? Because we need to see things through his eyes. We need to see right and wrong, good and just from his perspective because we're all sailing blind into the side of the canal. <laughs> thinking we're free. Uh, let me put it a different way. You know, if you wanted to like, you know, like, you know, put your finger right on the pulse of our life today, you know, um, you could go to one of our modern day prophets. Uh, you, know, um, you know, Paul quotes Epimenides of Crete and Mars Hill. He says, here's one of your own modern day prophets. He knows the truth. Well, let me do a similar example. Um, one of our modern day prophets, Stephen Colbert, the host of The Late Show, you know, stuck his finger right on the pulse of society uh, when, he, when he came up with a new word for the year. And a, and a few years ago, he came up with a word called truthiness. <laughs> truthiness. He says, truthiness. And that brings us to tonight's word, truthiness. Now, I'm sure some of the word police, the word anistas over at Webster's, are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me 
knows that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They are elitist, constantly telling us what is and isn't true or what did and didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me that the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say that it happened in 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, not heart. (laughs) Truthiness, right? I get to decide what's right based on my own eyesight. I determine what's right and what's wrong. Um, A more serious example of this is from Justice Kennedy back in 1992 in the Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He summarized it more seriously this way. He said, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own existence of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Now, sure, everyone's free to come up with those own answers, but what I want you to focus on is the way that Justice Kennedy said that sentence. At the heart of liberty is the right to drive my life into the canal. At the heart of liberty, Jesus says, at the heart of liberty is the freedom to know God, to love him, and to become more and more made into the image of Jesus. You are made in the image of God. You are designed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You You are designed to know God and to be loved by him and to make him the Lord and king of your life. Freedom for me looks like worshiping Jesus. And here's the thing. I can worship Jesus free and in a prison cell. Says Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is writing from a prison cell. You know what his point was? I know how to have plenty and I know how to have want. I know how to be brought high and I know how to be brought low. In fact, I've learned the secret of all things, that in Christ I can do all things. I can endure all things. You know why? Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus leads you to the open waters. Are you stuck on the canal thinking you're free? Why do we need a king? Well, Remember that guy Gideon, the guy who took all the gold, who's like a good leader, and then I was like, meh, hmm, I may not vote for him again second time around. You know that guy, Gideon? He was right about something. He was, he was absolutely right about something. In his story in, in Judges chapter 8, when the people come up to Gideon, they say, hey, why don't you be our king? Gideon gets the right answer, and I think this is why he's commended to us as a hero of the faith. You know why? Even though of all the other stuff that Gideon did later in his life, he got this right. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, be our king. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You see, friends, the king that Israel needs is not just a person. It's not just a guy. All throughout the Old Testament, the main argument is who is the king of God's people? It's the Lord. And Gideon knew it, and he says, I'm not your king, the Lord is your king. And when we get to the book of Samuel, uh, the people cry out and they say, Lord, give us a king. And what does the Lord say to Samuel? Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. 
You see, friends, the argument from the book of Judges is we don't just need a human king because they have this pesky problem of proving to be like everybody else we know, a mixture of good and bad, and most of them disappoint us. I mean, even the greatest king in the Old Testament, King David, even he was an adulterer and a murderer and a census taker. Even Moses, beloved Moses, righteous Moses, struck the rock and didn't enter the promised land. Who was the king? The king was God. And who is the king now? The king is God. Why do you need to see Jesus as your king? Let me make two arguments very briefly. Number one, you need to see God as your king because only God knows the right tension between justice and mercy. When you read the book of Judges, all kinds of past injustices against groups of people are committed. Awful things are done. And the people do not consult with the Lord what to do. You know what they do? They take up swords in their hand and they over-apply justice and they wipe peoples out and they kill people, right? And there are times in the book of Judges where the people clearly need mercy and forgiveness and they want the goodness of God. And that's the book of Judges is God is constantly giving them judges and giving them deliverers and giving them saviors to deliver them. But friends, we live in a society that demands justice for past sins. And it has no concept for how sin is atoned for and what restitution is and what the power of the gospel is because we are trying to administer justice and mercy apart from the king who is justice and mercy himself. Do you trust yourself with the levers of power? Then why do you trust yourself with the levers on the ship? Who's the captain of your life? Second reason you need God as king is because no human could do what we need him to do. Even if he's righteous, he's going to die. Even King David's going to fail us. Uh, Even whoever you place your trust in, they have this pesky problem of being marred by sin. See, but what Judges is arguing and what the Bible is arguing, in the book of Judges it says, we don't just need a guy, we need a guy from the line of Judah. And we need a guy not like these other guys. And then, of course, we get the guy from the line of Judah, and his name is David. And David is great until he's not. And even when he's great, he still dies, and we get Solomon. And Solomon's great until what? Until he's not. And then his son starts off, and guess what? He's not even great. And the Old Testament devolves into the sad story of failed opportunities because there is only one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is not just a guy, he is not just a human who lived. He is the Lord himself come to save us all. And he is calling you to be a part of his kingdom. Imagine, if you can, let me just finish up. If you can, just do a, do a, a thought experiment. Imagine a king who is truly for you. None of this, I don't want to be king, but give me your gold. A king who was truly for you like no one you've ever known. 
Imagine a king who was full of grace and truth, who could rightly administer justice and mercy, who you could trust with that. Imagine a king who gave you real freedom, who was the captain of the ship who brought you to open waters, not so that you could be restricted, but that you could become who you were always meant to be. And then imagine a king who doesn't ask you to lay down your life and die in a battle. Imagine a king who laid down his life for you and saved you from the justice and wrath of God that you deserve. But because he is so loving, he did it so that you would live forever with him. And then, of course, friends, imagine if that king were still alive. Uh, Well, friends, it's Resurrection Sunday, and you don't have to imagine anymore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is king. Lord, I pray that even now you would be calling people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue all over this globe to know your goodness and your mercy, to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross, and to realize that their identity is not in people or their opinions or past abuses or in their failures or in our successes, but that our identity is in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.